the reading of the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 3. So I invite your reverent, joyful, and faithful hearing of God's word to us from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Once uh, God chose to save, I say that because he did not have to save, simply could have abandoned all mankind to uh, the judgment of fall of our great forefather, Adam. But once he chose to save, he had to send his son, who had to assume humanity. Because Adam fell as a man, and the last Adam, Christ, uh, assumes humanity to represent uh, humanity. And not only uh, is it important that we grasp that God had to send his son who had to assume uh, humanity, uh, he had to suffer incredible indignity. It's not to say that other people in the world haven't suffered more than Jesus suffered upon the cross, but no one has ever suffered as a perfect person. And that's the astonishing fact the suffering of our Savior and his humanity, that he willingly underwent suffering on behalf of his people uh, as uh, God in all of his perfections. Uh, so we're going to look this morning at a measure of the intensity of the passion of our Savior and his humanity. Uh, it is, I think, from the prophet uh, Isaiah, an astonishing tale. Uh, this is, as you, uh, as, as you perhaps uh, know, uh, the fourth and the last of the servant uh, songs extolling uh, God's agent uh, and his accomplishment of uh, universal redemption for all men uh, without distinction. Uh, as you know, in the progress of our study of uh, Isaiah, we have uh, examined events like uh, the second exodus, uh, the beginning of uh, the new creation, 
uh, in light of the second exodus, a restoration to the city of Jerusalem, land of Israel. Uh, for us, all of these things are accomplished in an escalated form by the servant. He's the agent of God. Uh, none of those things can ever occur apart from a divine agent. Uh, and uh, more importantly, a divine agent that suffers an incredible passion on behalf of his people to affect a new creation, uh, to begin uh, the last great immigration uh, to uh, uh, the great city uh, in heaven, the new Jerusalem. The, uh, the three previous songs, as you know, hint at suffering, uh, but it is expanded upon here in the language of uh, vicarious substitution. In other words, our Lord took the place of his people in his punishments. There has to be a substitute. Christ is more than an example. He's more than a good man. He's a vicarious substitute who's going to suffer incredible indignity for his people. He's going to take their place. He's going to take our place, if you will. Uh, and as well, it's a suffering of penal satisfaction by penal, I mean he was punished. He was punished by God the Father uh, to effect substitutionary atonement, to satisfy uh, a debt and a liability that we owed. He owed nothing. He had no liability whatsoever. He didn't even have to come. But God choosing to save had to come in his son, assume humanity, suffer incredible indignity on behalf of his people to satisfy what we owed. Uh, by the way, that is the essence uh, of the gospel. You owe God. But in his grace, he paid for you. Uh, the, the overall tenor of our text this morning is one of astonishment at what the servant overcame uh, to be successful. Uh, so let's begin with his success. Christ was, uh, was successful. The servant was successful. Uh, as you know, many people interpret the servant songs to be the nation of Israel. Uh, I, I trust in the examination of the other songs that we have dispatched with that. Uh, uh, but this is, uh, in light of New Testament authors, uh, the song that is fulfilled by Christ and by Christ alone. Uh, but his success, the text begins with a divine uh, declaration of, uh, of victory. Uh, my servant will prosper. I understand that many English translations uh, uh, don't use that particular language, but in my own view that that is the proper way to understand the text, that the servant will prosper. It's not to uh, undermine, secondarily, that he prospers by being wise and prudent, uh, but this is uh, the reality that he will be successful. Uh, and I think that encompasses the grandeur of our salvation, that the humanity of Christ is going to succeed, cannot fail, will succeed, uh, and in that success he seals our destiny in our own fallen humanity, because God does not fail. Uh, the basic idea of the verb of success is to be prudent or wise, suggesting that the path to success engages wisdom. And of course, uh, Christ is the sum and substance of all wisdom. He's the wisdom of God. And in that wisdom, he's going to be successful. Uh, the fact of the success is stated in three verbs. 
uh, in the text, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will achieve the pinnacle of elevation that is solely and uniquely his. There is no other God or presumed God standing beside him. Only he achieves the pinnacle of absolute perfection and reception of divine worship. Everyone else and everything else and every other religion, if you will, is made subordinate to him. And in fact, having said that, uh, all of them but his are totally discounted and vacated as false. If you accept any other view, then you uh, tarnish the success of the son and you declare him to be unsuccessful. And that is not a wise choice for men and women who are in desperate need of salvation uh, accomplished by the success of the God-man. Uh, it means that God will vindicate and reward his son. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, theologically uh, alludes to this theology Isaiah in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2 in uh, verses uh, 9 to 11. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Uh, the previous uh, verses, of course, stress the humiliation of Christ in his humanity. He suffered terribly. And uh, because of his voluntary suffering and punishment on behalf of his people, God is going to exalt him above every name. Uh, listen to the words of the text. For God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. He has no peers. Despite all of the false religions of the world, they are false because Christ has no peers. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lost or saved, all will make that confession. It's certainly a compelling invitation to say it as uh, one who is redeemed, that Christ is your Savior. You willingly uh, confess uh, his name, be above every name, and uh, bend your knee uh, to him and to him alone. But even the lost will be compelled to acknowledge uh, in the vindication of Christ in the end of the age uh, because of his greatness. It's a reminder to us uh, what he won for us and that uh, in him, despite all of the vagaries of life, and they are many, and they are deep and they are wide and they are long and they are hard, but in him you win uh, because uh, he suffers uh, no uh, eternal loss for uh, any that he redeems, that in Christ you win. Outside of Christ, you lose uh, everything, and you lose perpetually worlds without end, uh, because uh, God the Father only accepts uh, the work of God the Son. Uh, but it is good to remember, all of us suffer. Uh, we go through uh, all of the uh, measures of the fallen humanity in which we live, and so Christ became, though he was God, he became man to suffer in dignity as an infinite person. Uh, and so when we suffer, we, we can 
identify with Christ to a measure because he suffered as a perfect person. Now, you and I suffer uh, imperfectly, and sometimes we suffer because we're deserving. Uh, he deserved none of, of the sufferings rained upon him, and he suffered willingly, voluntarily, as, as God. Uh, that's an astonishing event. It is the reminder that the path to glory is a suffering. Uh, we will learn in the remainder of this servant song, it's a path you and I will walk as well. Uh, but Christ is the captain of our salvation. He has gone before us. And therefore, we can have a sure and certain knowledge that uh, all of our sufferings uh, will be corrected in the majesty of the work accomplished by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Well, the rest of the text, uh, we will partially look at this morning, but even through the rest of the chapter through verse 12, is uh, an examination of the suffering of the God-man, the indignities heaped upon the humanity of Christ. Uh, and so we begin, uh, the first uh, look at the suffering is a comparison with the suffering of uh, Israel in the Babylonian captivity. Of course, many were astonished uh, at the captivity because uh, uh, they thought that uh, the God of Israel had failed. The God of Israel hadn't failed. They were going into captivity because uh, he had offended them. Uh, but even in that, God is going to be successful because God knows and brooks no failure whatsoever. Uh, but there was an astonishment also in the sense of the measure of the suffering taken away from the city of Jerusalem, taken away from the localized presence of God in the temple. It's a sense of astonishment. You and I need to recover a sense of that astonishment that God meets with his people in word and in sacrament. Sometimes we treat that all uh, much too lightly, but it is a great sense of astonishment that God through suffering meets with us in word and in sacrament, that uh, he doesn't vacate us. He is with us. Uh, the astonishment as well uh, is captured uh, perhaps in an initial sense in his appearance, verse 14. His appearance was marred more than any other man has formed more than the sons of men. Uh, it's a reminder that he was disfigured in a terrible way, as if uh, in the uh, punishments in his uh, civil trials, he was rendered into a massive wound, barely recognizable by men. Uh, disfigured in such a pronounced decree that, degree that uh, one commentator cites that he hardly appeared human. Uh, and again, the recognition that he, he was undergoing a penal substitution, penal meaning he, he was punished, uh, being punished for the sins of his people, taking our place, uh, captured in the essence that he is an eternal person rendering an eternal sacrifice through suffering to satisfy punishment on behalf of his people. That's one of the reasons I totally reject faulty notions like purgatory, because it's a demeaning of Christ. I reject repeated sacrifices of the Savior uh, in the Mass, because it's demeaning to Christ. He's being punished, uh, but... It's a one-time, non-repeatable event 
uh, captured in the majesty of his perfection, God, assuming humanity, is going to suffer great indignity. Uh, the statement, of course, uh, is a figure stressing his passion. Uh, and this is picked up in the following verse in, in uh, uh, the shedding of blood. Uh, the word is used that he sprinkled uh, many nations. Uh, the verb to sprinkle is used in the sacrificial system for the sin offering for guilt, also used in the con consecration of priests, but I think here it's uh, capturing for us uh, the finality that God in becoming man is providing the last final sin offering never to be repeated. Uh, a sin offering of such infinite value that it cannot be repeated, he's going to sprinkle and satisfy the wrath of God and make cleansing uh, for his people. What's also astonishing about this is in the Old Testament, uh, the priests, the people would bring sacrifices, the priests would offer the sacrifice. Uh, in our case, uh, the priest is the sacrifice. Astonishing. Uh, the text is a summation of the entire Levitical system uh, collapsing upon the son, the God-man, meaning that he is the sacrifice par excellence and that the entire system is fulfilled by him and stops with him. Uh, much of the theology, entire book of Hebrews, uh, a sacrifice offered one time, efficient for all time. And the object here, of course, uh, strikingly is Gentile nations. Uh, indicating that the sacrifice was to secure all men without distinction. Uh, to look at a previous servant song, 49, uh, in verse 6. Too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. Uh, he's going to recover his people uh, from uh, the nation of Israel. He's going to recover be a light to the nations, again, all men without distinction. Uh, it is a uh, sacrifice of infinite value, unlimited in its nature to secure all for which it was intended. If it is anything otherwise than that, then he was not successful. Christ did not die for the possibility of salvation. Uh, he died to save, and save he did. But the passion is so intensive and extensive that kings are astonished. And so, again, the language, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, and what had not been told them before, they will see. Reminded that the gospel will go forth, and kings will be uh, astonished at what God did in God the Son. They are speechless and in awe when they see and understand that uh, in the loss of all things, the servant gained salvation for all for which it was intended. Now, Paul cites this text in Romans 15, 21 as he advances the gospel, carrying the gospel before kings and royalty uh, to take the news and that uh, kings will be astonished of what God did in God the Son an event that only can be accomplished by uh, God and that, the God-man. And again, it frames the content of the gospel for us, that he gave all. He gave everything. He left nothing. 
and he won all. You and oftentimes uh, hear or read of some coach, uh, leave it all on the field. It's a great halftime speech, I guess, but uh, it's a speech that's been given many times to a team that goes on to lose. Christ didn't lose, cannot lose because of who he is, God. Uh, all of the perfection of divinity uh, cannot lose, will not lose, and affects uh, that precisely for which uh, he intended to die for, to sprinkle cleansing upon uh, all men without distinction. Uh, but he gave it all. Of course, for a point uh, that should uh, uh, astonish us and that for which we should never lose the sense of wonderment of what he did. And, and it, the other reality to this is that the astonish, astonishment uh, is captured in the reality that victory, for the most part, does not come to the world system in, in, in such a way. Uh, we will speak to this uh, uh, further in a moment, but uh, in, in the days of Christ, his sufferings upon the cross uh, was seen to be a cataclysmic defeat that's why his, uh, his disciples just simply left. Well, it's over with. He gave it a good shot, but the team lost. They were astonished when they would later learn that that's exactly what he was to undergo to affect victory. Uh, application to this uh, in our own lives. I'm not unaware that as Christian people, we suffer sometimes incredible indignities, all of the pains of life, uh, but never the pains of hell forever because he suffered those for us. Uh, but it's good to know we have a captain of our salvation uh, who can identify with us because of we, what he suffered. Romans chapter 8 in the 18th verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us a glory that he won for us by himself. Uh, verses 1 to 3 of uh, 53rd chapter again continue this sense of astonishment of what God did in God the Son. The second reality in verse uh, uh, 1 is the astonishment that so few believe. Now, who has believed our message? Who has believed our report? Uh, more importantly, that so few were enabled to believe. And so we read, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, it's not just the astonishment that God did this, but uh, we, we couldn't believe it had we seen it. And so he uh, gives the power of his arm to enable us to believe. Uh, marvel, astonishment of the grace and the provision of God. We were not able, but he enabled us by his power. Uh, the power in initially was granted to so few. Uh, I, I simply would remind you theologically that it's only by the power of God that men can believe. Absent that power, no one can believe because we're dead in sin. Uh, great reminder of the gospel how we, we owe everything even our faith 
uh, to the work of Christ upon the cross. Uh, this, uh, this text is uh, cited by the Apostle John in John chapter 12 uh, at the conclusion of the public ministry of Christ. Uh, as you know, uh, contextually, uh, chapter 12 follows chapter 11 in which Lazarus is raised from the dead. Uh, you might say to yourself, well, that's a miracle so astonishing that if anyone seen Lazarus being raised from the dead, they would have believed. No, dead men can't believe. Regardless of how astonishing the miracle is, uh, and that's exactly what John tells us, John chapter 12 and verses 37 to 38. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, we can only see when God gives us eyes. And that is the power of God. Astonishing fact that even though we were his enemies, he gave us the power to believe and to submit to him, to flee to him. That, my friend, is the gospel. When we could not cooperate, when we had no ability to believe, he enabled us to believe. Again, astonishing our inability, but his ability. The third reason for astonishment was in insignificant origins and, and appearance. Uh, verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched uh, ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon in him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It's not the way it's done in our culture. Uh, appearance is everything. Background is everything. Education is everything. Not so with the God-man. The arboreal metaphor speaks to the unlikely prospects of his success given his humble origins. Uh, you and I grasp that immediately in, in uh, 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 his birth and his parents. He wasn't born to majesty. He was born in a very, very humble family. Uh, his birth was an, an unlikely birth for a divine king. Kings generally aren't born uh, with stables and farm animals. This king was as an expression of the indignity that he willingly uh, suffered on behalf of his people. The phrase, a root from dry ground, speaks to the reality that uh, everything was stacked against him. Most of you know that I'm not much of a gardener, but one thing I do know, in the midst of the uh, uh, hot Oklahoma summer, like August, we water our plants or our yards. I say that smilingly because I wouldn't water any of it, but uh, if you want them to live, you water them with lots of water or they will die. Uh, it was so with Christ. Uh, he grew up in an environment in which it was entirely unlikely that he would make it. You put a gardenia out in the middle of August and give it no water and no shade, it's going to die. Christ came to die. Everything was stacked against him. 
His appearance was absent grandeur and majesty. He was not a man of charisma. Therefore, it was unlikely that men would be drawn to him due to the absence of any personal magnetism. You know, by the way, having said all that, it's very comforting, is it not, that you and I truly succeed in him uh, because there were not many wise among you uh, that God chose. Uh, not many kings, not many lords, not many princes, uh, not many with uh, expanded uh, uh, advanced degrees uh, time and again. But we win in him because he paid it all. Uh, great reminder from Philippians chapter 2 and the 7th verse. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Uh, he became a servant. He didn't come as a Lord uh, to live his life as a Lord. He came, assumed uh, Humanity assumed the role of a servant. Uh, great reminder to us, is it not? That's what we do in the church. Uh, we, we come to serve. Uh, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Though he is rich, uh, he became poor. That we who were poor might be made rich. Think about it, the riches of the majesty, the grandeur of God the King, God the Son. Uh, that he set aside the voluntary use of his attributes and his heavenly glory. To come to assume humanity, uh, absent its uh, lostness, uh, became perfect humanity. But humanity nonetheless to suffer incredible indignity, uh, to pay the penalty of the sins of his people. Uh, who does that? Uh, who leaves uh, heavenly glory, the object of uh, infinite praise, eternal praise on behalf of the entire angelic host? Uh, a total, complete union with the glory of God the Father and God the Spirit. Who leaves such high privilege to serve the God-man? Uh, and, to, and to give it all, to leave it all, to win uh, uh, all of his people and to give them everything in terms of eternal glory. Uh, but the emphasis here is not, not just what he did in his divinity, but what he did in his humanity, the extreme poverty of his humanity. Uh, wonderful application there in my own life is to uh, be careful about complaining. Christ suffered it all, and not a lot of complaining. A reminder of everything that he left and did for us. But simply the reality, he wasn't a Rockefeller. Didn't graduate from Sandhurst. He didn't get his PhD in nuclear physics from MIT. Uh, it, it, it is virtually, from a human standpoint, impossible to get ahead with the credentials of Christ. but he got ahead and did exactly what the atonement was designed for and won his people. Because with God, as we read in the Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, all things are possible. And the God-man wins for us, even though he undergoes uh, extreme passion and poverty. Lastly, verse 3. Uh, 
who's despised and forsaken of men, rejected of men, uh, even today. He was a man of sorrows. He knew failure. Sometimes say, after the Lord only knew what I was going through. <laughs> he, he knows. He was acquainted with grief. He suffered that as God. He was acquainted with wounds, both physical and spiritual, so much so that men would turn away from him in disgust, uh, wounded in a manner that you and I can barely comprehend in light of the fact that he was God. Lots of men suffer. Some men may suffer even more so in terms of pain than Christ did upon the cross, but no one suffers as the God-man, uh, infinite perfection embracing humanity, uh, to be turned into a massive wound uh, to pay the penalty of the sins of his people. Uh, from the worldly point of view, the cross was the supreme act of failure and humanity at its weakest. You know, they mocked him upon the cross. Well, come down and say, well, that's exactly what he was doing, saving his people. That's why uh, you can never lose the sense of amazement that those words upon the cross, when Christ cries, it is finished. He finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. Succeeded totally, absolutely, irrevocably, and finally, and eternally, and that's the very cause of our salvation. The world thought that he failed. You and I know otherwise because of Scripture. It's a reminder by words of application that uh, you win. Sometimes uh, you're going to win in, in your own poverty and in your own wounds and uh, your own chastisements because he won it all for you to recover you totally and finally and absolutely in eternal glory. Uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, those words are not true of you. Uh, so otherwise, a great warrant to come to faith, to come to Christ, uh, because uh, he pays the penalty for the sins of sinners and vacates their liability totally and finally. It's like that great day some of you have experienced. Uh, the bank sends you back your, your mortgage, stamped upon it, paid in full. You'll never get another coupon book once that happens. That's what Christ did for us, paid in full. It's canceled, in the words of the Apostle Paul, canceled the certificate of debt. It's a price so great we can only be astonished, but it's a price so great in light of the poverty that he underwent to pay. Uh, but not just to pay, to pay for us, cancel our debt. Uh, it's a simple reality that God uh, does not need impeccable ancestry. He doesn't need its degrees, its commissions, its titles, its physical beauty and wealth. That Jesus, as the God-man and as our Savior, was encumbered with every handicap imaginable. And he still won. And when you look at his humiliation in humanity, uh, what you see is one uh, in command of everything. So we read in the Gospels, he's in command of the spirit world uh, because of his divinity. Uh, even Satan must ask permission of Jesus to sift Peter. That the highest order of the kingdom of evil must go and bow before Christ 
as the God-man to seek permission to touch Peter. Uh, and of course, the greatest of all, the grave. He commands the grave and the grave obeys. You can never lose the sense of astonishment of uh, Christ standing before the grave of uh, Lazarus, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus obeyed. He couldn't do otherwise because of who was speaking. But it's more than that. Love the words of uh, John the Apostle. Of all that the Father has given me, I lose none. I will raise him up on the last day. Christ will command and the grave will obey and answer. The sea will give up the dead. None of the people of God will be lost because of the victory of the God-man upon the cross. Uh, it's been my privilege on occasion, uh, certainly in the Army, to, uh, to hold the title of uh, commander. That's chump change. I mean, this is the real deal, that even the grave obeys Christ. The greatest of all aspects of defeat is that we're poured into the grave. Christ will recover all. But the greatest indignity, uh, one of the uh, reminders I had in visiting my mother, lots of people around in a similar condition to her that she was in, I, I began to understand that some of these women, most of them were women, or some men were men and women of incredible astonishment degrees and accomplishments in terms of civil society and all slowly fading away. They come with a gurney, they cover you with a purple rug and it's nothingness, but not to Christ. He commands that his people will live. Spiritually, the commandment comes first in terms of the heart. He commands and we believe, we obey. How can you do anything but obey the living God? Uh, he loses nothing. Uh, and at the end, the end of the age, he'll command the grave. Greatest of all events imaginable. And by the way, his vindication by the Father will become our vindication because we will be raised to life everlasting and the glory that was intended for us from time immemorial because of the victory of, of, uh, of God. Uh, who encumbers himself with all of the intensity, the vagaries of humanity, but he still wins because of who he is. Uh, the greatest astonishment is that he will conquer and win the greatest victory of all time to the end, that God the Father will put all things in submission to him. you're a Christian, you're on his side, therefore you will win in him. If you're not a Christian, uh, you will not win. Everything will be, uh, at the end of the age, be physically uh, made to be in submission to uh, God the Son in light of what he did uh, as the God-man in his humanity. And glory will turn a suffering uh, and totally and radically change it because he did it upon the cross. Vindicated in his resurrection, it's what awaits us. Uh, we suffer, we cry, we weep, uh, we have wounds. Uh, we sometimes wonder if anyone understands, but he will turn all of our sufferings into glory because he's the captain of our salvation. Uh, if, you, uh, if you do not know him as your personal savior, uh, 
this is the only savior uh, that God gives. Uh, there is none greater. Uh, in all of his infinite perfections, he wins for his people and uh, will recover everything given to him. Simply uh, ask that you would ponder uh, that if you vacate him, uh, even what little you have or you think you have will be taken away from you. So Jesus is the architect of our salvation by assuming humanity and suffering. It's astonishing in what he did by how he did it and what he accomplished. For us, God became man to win man. And he did it in an astonishing way, with suffering of great indignity uh, because he was paying the penalty that we deserve to pay uh, to win for us uh, the glory of everlasting life. And may that wonderment and sense of astonishment never, never leave you.